Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to the Ave Geeks podcast. I'm Sergeant Jack Anderson, and I'm here tonight with Sergeant Aiden Paul. How's it going? And as always, we are going to be your hosts. So uh, unfortunately, this week, Sergeant McConnell will uh, not be joining us. I believe she said she had uh, some family event that uh, came up or something along those lines. Um, so we'll just see her again next week. Anyway, let's get on to uh, what tonight's topic will be. And it will be the evolution of air defense systems. So like early warning and missile defense systems. Very nice topic, gotta say. Mm-hmm. It's a very good topic. Uh, so normally when you think of like um, early warning or like missile defense systems, you probably think of, um, I don't know if anyone here has ever seen the movie War Games with uh, Matthew Broderick, the guy from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, but that was a movie from the 1980s where um, they have to try and prevent a nuclear war. And you get to see sort of the inside of uh, like the Air Force Command Center. You get to see like all the different Air Force bases. Um, and like you get to see all the missile silos come up on a computer screen. So that's what a lot of people think of. But I don't really think they think of like World War I, World War II, which is really when the strategy and when this technology started to be developed. So during the First World War, it became apparent that aircraft were not just a threat to soldiers on the front line, but to cities, ports, railways, and many other vital areas. So throughout the war, the Imperial German Air Force carried out dozens of air raids using Zeppelins and later planes. So this really was one of the first times that um, this could be done in military history. Before this, the only way to actually uh, attack an enemy position was to bring artillery up to that position. And at that point, you would have been able to evacuate all the civilians from that city. And um, it would really just be the military at that point. But with airplanes, they could move a lot quicker and they could completely bypass the front lines, which made them a lot more threatening and it made them a lot more effective. However, it also made uh, it made it a lot more dangerous to the civilians back home. They're now much more likely to be affected by an air raid. So to combat this problem, the British began to establish coordinated anti-air guns, searchlights and airfields. In addition to these, the Royal Navy began a program of patrol boats in the English Channel, which were equipped with radios. And um, what they would do is they would just sit out there and they'd warn when the German aircraft were approaching. With this system, the British were given enough time to evacuate civilians to bomb shelters and prepare defenses. However, this system did have a few flaws. First of all, it required visual contact with the enemy, which meant a large number of ships and observers would have to be used. So at this time, they didn't have uh, radar or satellite or GPS or anything like that. They had to basically go out onto a boat into the English Channel, give a guy a pair of binoculars, and that's all they had. They could only see airplanes with that. But considering how large the English Channel is and how large a lot of the oceans and uh, seas to the east of uh, the UK are, you can imagine the dozens upon dozens of boats that they'd have to use Uh, in order to do this, in order to get a very um, a good line of defenses, because otherwise stuff would start slipping through the cracks. However, you have to think about that they were very desperately short on ships at that point. The German U-boats were sinking tons of convoys, and the Royal Navy essentially needed every ship that they could spare. So it wasn't really practical to have all these ships just sitting around and waiting to see if there was going to be an air raid or not. 
And on top of that, when there was an air raid during the First World War, AA technology wasn't exactly very advanced. Like flag guns wouldn't be properly applied by all militaries until the 1930s, 1940s. So their main defense against aircraft was mostly just machine guns using tracers. So yeah, so they essentially just had to use uh, fighter planes. But that brings up the, um, the second main problem, which was they really had no way of directing friendly aircraft towards the enemy or giving them any situational updates. So essentially, all the observers on the ground would know is where the airship was or where the airplane was, and they might be able to give an estimate as to its speed and maybe its heading. However, if that airship changed heading or changed speed or anything like that, once the pilots were airborne, they would have no way to tell them that. Because during World War I, radios were still a fairly new technology, and it wasn't really to the point where it was common on a lot of airplanes. Sometimes you'd see telegraph um, machines on an, actual, uh, on an actual airplane, so they could just use a Morse code message and send that back to um, the other aircraft. However, this was not commonly used on fighters. It was mostly seen on uh, reconnaissance aircraft, where um, they'd be up front and they'd be directing artillery. So they'd need to use Morse code to say where the shells were going and where the enemies were. However, on these fighter planes, and especially in England where it was thought to be safe, you really didn't see any type of communication technology. The pilots mainly relied on hand signals to talk to each other, but this meant that they had no way at all to talk to uh, the people on the ground. So that was a really big problem because um, you really need to know where your enemy is and what they're doing. So these pilots were essentially flying in blind. They looked on a map and they were told where their enemy was. And then from there, they had to pretty much guess as to where they were going. And that did lead to a lot of, uh, a lot of enemy air raids slipping through the cracks. So the system wasn't as effective as it probably could have been. However, it probably was the best thing that they had with the technology at the time. Another thing about the about the radio problem that you mentioned was not only was it not really around at the time, but there's also the problem that at the time two-way radio had to be wired and you're in an airplane. Yeah, exactly. So there really was no way that anyone could talk to these pilots once they were airborne. It really was a tough situation. However, all of these problems would be solved with the invention of the radar in the interwar period. So during the 1920s and 30s, scientists began experimenting with radar, which worked by sending out sound waves and measured the time it took back for the waves to come back. Sorry, it measured the time that took the uh, radio waves to come back. So with this, they could detect the sound waves bouncing off of enemy aircraft. And using this uh, bouncing back, they could calculate the position altitude, and the amount of enemy planes. This technology, combined with recent improvements in radio, was used to great effect by the British Royal Air Force. The British introduced a series of radar stations across the south and east coast called Chain Home during the mid-1930s. Now, Chain Home was a vital part of the RAF's Dowding system, which is widely considered the world's first early warning system. It worked by taking readings from radar stations and sending them to fighter command headquarters. Here, the dispatchers would mark the contact on a map and scramble the nearest fighter squadron. 
Using radio, they could send the pilots real-time updates on the position of the enemy planes. This system greatly increased the efficiency of fighter missions, and it allowed uh, command to prioritize larger groups of enemies or which were uh, attacking more vital targets. So during World War I, they essentially had to pass through every message because they didn't know um, how many German aircraft there would be. With this one, if you saw that um, there was uh, 50 German aircraft here and two German aircraft here, you could actually, while they were in the air, you could radio them and say, hey, we need you to go for these 50 German aircraft. Don't go for like the two over here. Or if they're going for a far more important target, um, they could definitely uh, send them a radio transmission and tell them, hey, it looks like these guys are going here. That's really important. We need you guys to step in and intervene. So this system was far more effective and far more efficient. Um, in fact, many of uh, the Luftwaffe crews actually recounted that they were astonished by how the RAF always seemed to be waiting for them. However, as mentioned in our Battle of Britain episode, German High Command greatly underestimated the value of this system and only carried out a limited number of strikes on the chain home radars. This would actually turn out to be... Uh, a big reason why Germany not only lost the Battle of Britain, but likely lost the war too. They really didn't, um, I want to say actually Hermann Goering, because I know um, a, lot of, a lot of junior officers in the Luftwaffe, they knew that this is vital technology, but Hermann Goering, the commander of the Luftwaffe, only ordered one or two attacks throughout the entire Battle of Britain. And he really underestimated how powerful this technology was. He thought that their numbers would uh, help them beat the RAF, but their superior technology is what helped the British win. One more thing about the doubting system was that it was infinitely better than what the Brits had before during World War II, which was essentially just a bunch of giant ear-like sound amplifiers on the British coast that they would use to just hear aircraft coming towards them, which I'm surprised they even got that to work, but... Well, yeah, it is, it is truly impressive. Uh, if you've ever seen pictures of this, what they did is they essentially took these big things, um, like these big circles, they put them around their ears and amplified all the sound that was coming in from one direction. So they just point their head uh, out towards the English coast and they could actually hear the sound of the engines. However, again, you run into a very similar problem as during the First World War, where you actually need to have people standing out in the field and doing this. Whereas with the doubting system, you could have just one guy sitting on a radar looking at the entire south of England, and he could pinpoint exactly when the Germans were coming. So later in the war, the Germans began to use radar as well to detect aircraft. Now, despite the fact that their system was far more advanced than the British, it was nowhere near as efficient. Um, and this led to a higher success rate in a lot of Allied bombing raids. Now, the reason for the inefficiency was that the technology was so advanced that it took far longer for it to implement. So the doubting system, it might have been a lot less reliable and it might have been um, a lot less advanced than the German system. It might have been a lot less technical. However, because of that, they were able to introduce it very early on in the war. Like um, K-POM, that was developed in uh, 1938. They started finishing that off. And then the Germans, they only started getting big into radars in 41 and 42. So quite a few years, the British had this advantage over the Germans. And the main problem for the Luftwaffe 
was that by the time these radars were in place, they'd already lost a large number of their aircraft, both to the Battle of Britain and to the Eastern Front. So by the late war, there were barely any planes left in Germany that could intercept enemy aircraft. This meant that in many cases, less than a dozen fighters would be sent up against hundreds of enemy bombers. The German system would have most certainly worked just as well as the British one if it had been implemented just a few years earlier. But by 1944, the Luftwaffe just couldn't compete with the combined numbers of the RAF, Red Air Force, and the U.S. Army Air Corps. So, yeah, I think um, if the Luftwaffe had uh, enacted this system right from the get-go, it absolutely would have uh, helped them win the war. I think they probably would have beaten the RAF. Not only that, but I think they probably would have had a much greater appreciation for the technology, and Göring might have actually gone to take it out during the Battle of Britain. Yeah, I gotta, I gotta say, the every time I'm looking at reasons why the Germans won, lost World War II, it's always down to just ignorance and overall just what's the word ineptitude. Yeah, and I think that's um, that's one big thing you see a lot in um, a lot of the high-ranking Nazi leadership. I think Hitler had some uh, very smart generals and some very smart admirals. However, in a lot of cases, he would uh, appoint people to positions not based on their skill, but based on their um, allegiance to the Nazi party. And that is something that would be his downfall. As Hermann Goering, he was, um, he was a devout Nazi. However, he, he really wasn't the best commander of the Luftwaffe, and there definitely were better officers for the job. Uh, and you can say that for quite a lot of the uh, Nazi party members, that they really didn't know what they were doing, but they were appointed simply because of their loyalty to Hitler. And yeah, again, that was a major problem. So following the end of World War II, early warning and integrated defense systems would become vital as the threat of a nuclear war between the Soviet Union and NATO loomed over the world. In order to prevent an attack from foreign air power, the US and Canada formed NORAD, which stands for the North American Aerospace Defense Command. I got to be honest, I don't know where they came up with that acronym from because NORAD doesn't have a C in it. Um, by the looks of it, they're missing an A. So I don't know who exactly was trying to spell this out. Maybe they just realized that NORAD sounded cool and like they tried to come up with a way to justify it. But I got to be honest, like this acronym doesn't really make the most sense considering how many extra letters that they had left over afterwards. Well, I mean, to be fair, NORAD sounds a lot cooler than NORAD. It does, yeah. And especially if you were uh, adding A's in there and like another T in there, that would have sounded really bizarre. Yeah. So that, that's that got to be the reason that they thought NORAD sounded cool because other than that, the acronym is like really bizarre and like the the spelling of it would be completely wrong. Correction, my proper pronunciation wasn't quite there. It would, it would actually be more like NADC. Yeah. Okay. All right. So um, NORAD, uh, it worked by having missile silos located all across North America, which were operated by control centers across the U.S. and Canada. And each one of these were responsible for tracking and targeting any unknown or hostile aircraft. The system was well organized as North America was divided up into several regions and sectors, which allowed each station to focus on only their area. NORAD also unified all of the surface-to-air missiles and fighter squadrons under a single command 
which allowed for much easier coordination. So this is probably one of the most important aspects of a early warning system. It's that everything is completely coordinated and everything's also um, sort of divided up so everyone knows what job they're doing. Uh, this is something that, uh, sorry, Paul, you unmuted there for a second. Uh, did you want to add something? Uh, no. Okay. So this was something that was uh, sort of just being figured out in World War II. I think the British RAF did a very good job with it because they did something very similar. They divided uh, the south and the east of England into different sections that were uh, covered by different radars. And then um, one, uh, one command center sort of controlled all of the anti-aircraft guns and controlled all of the uh, fighter squadrons. So that's pretty similar to what we have nowadays in North America with uh, NORAD. You have, um, uh, you have all of the surface-to-air missiles and a lot of the interceptor squadrons under one command, and you have a lot of the radars divided up so that everyone's only looking at their own section. So the Soviets used a system of radars, sometimes referred to as DUGA. Now, this is spelled D-U-G-A. Uh, I'm hoping I didn't butcher that Russian name. So DUGA had two large radars, which each had ranges which could reach far beyond the horizon. So like hundreds of miles, these things could see, which is why there was uh, actually only two of them in the Soviet Union. One of them was actually in Chernobyl and the other was in Eastern Siberia. So following the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia began using the new, oh, I'm gonna butcher this, uh, Voronezh, Voronezh radar. I think I said that almost correctly. However, there is not much information present as the other systems we talked about in this episode. So like uh, with the doubting system, you can go on Wikipedia, read pretty much everything about this. Same with a lot of the German systems. NORAD, you can read a lot about. Uh, you can't read everything. But with this, with uh, Veronezh, there really isn't that much. You can see like the location of some of the uh, missile sites. You can see the location of some of the radars. But other than that, there is not a lot of information. And honestly, this is probably to be expected. As I highly doubt the uh, Russian government just wants anyone to go online and be able to see where all of their military equipment is. I think that is something that uh, is to be expected from Russia. Yeah, I got to say, I'm pretty sure most nations wouldn't want that. Yeah, you're right. Most nations wouldn't want that. Um, so I guess with NORAD, they, they definitely don't show you uh, everything, but um like they don't show you how all the systems work they just give you like a general idea with the soviet union and with russia they really don't do that too much they tell you it exists they tell you maybe one or two locations and that's about it you don't get much more on how it works or how a lot of the systems operate i mean then then again like with the u.s they you suppose that they've got the excuse of the fact that they're practically untouchable so i mean might, might as well share our secrets with the civilians yeah, I guess might as well, right? No, no one can, no one can hit us anyway. Yeah, I guess. All right, so that is just about our time for tonight. Well, we really flew through that one. Like, uh, we started. I started talking, and boom, like twenty minutes have passed. I don't know where that time all went. Uh, I guess time flies when you're having fun, right? I suppose so. Air defense is a very nice subject. 
It is. It is a very uh, interesting subject. It's it's also one of my favorite subjects that we've covered on this. I know it might not be uh, the most glamorous topic, but I just find it really interesting how all of these different parts and all these different people, they all come together to form sort of one cohesive unit, one big system that works for a single purpose, which is defending the country. It's really impressive. Now, with uh, all that said, that is our time for tonight. So I'd once again like to thank you for listening to the Ave Geeks podcast. Goodbye, and we'll see you next time. Have a good one.